Let's delve into um, scripture now. We've got a reading from Mark 14, verses 1 to 11, and it's subtitled, Jesus Anointed at Bethany. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my head, on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Hey church. So my name's Steve. Uh, most of you probably know me, so I've been bumping around here for a little while. Uh, before I begin kind of giving a few reflections on the scripture that Kerry just read, I just wanted to start by saying thank you to you as a church for the support that you give to the ministry that I run. Um, this last week or so, the uh, support that you give to Horizons Family Law Centre, the ministry I operate uh, through care and concern, came through again. Um, and one of the nice things that... Um, happens for me every week is that God shocks me with his goodness and kindness through his people um, and you would be um, surprised to know how often I am on the verge of tears looking at a bank account um, because we can't keep serving the poor unless God's people keep resourcing what we do so uh, I'm genuinely humbled that you see what we do as something worth putting your money into as a church uh, I want to start by saying thank you um, up the back of put just a couple of our latest ministry updates if you want to see what you're making possible through the the generosity that you sow into us through care and concern um, please grab one of those and have a look at it if you'd like to um, stay in contact or if you as a family wanted to add us to your tax deductible giving there's some connection forms and if you wanted to come and share a meal with us and um, hear a bit more about what we're doing um, and explore the possibility of how you could connect with that we've got a fundraiser dinner coming up on the 26th of October at Parramatta Baptist Church uh, so if it's still legal for people from the Hills District to go into Parramatta um, you're welcome to make the journey uh, that long distance west <laughs> that's the ad done and um, I'm going to pray Thank you, Father, for the gift of another day. A new chance to breathe and bring you glory through the way that we live. And 
Thank you for the chance to gather together as church and we pray for those across the whole world who are gathering together as church this weekend, those who do so like us in safety and those who do so with a lack of safety and we ask that you will grace all of us with your presence in a way that firstly lets us just touch heaven afresh because you're so kind. And then lets us know how we can be involved in letting heaven touch earth in the everyday ordinariness of our lives. Meet us in these next few moments, Father, if, if the scriptures are true and your strength and your goodness are made plain in our weakness and our ordinariness, then I am the exact right person for you to use in these next few moments. And I ask that you will, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a church, you're partway through this series on discipleship and particularly what we learn about discipleship in, the, in Mark's account of Jesus' life. And thanks for the chance to come and offer some thoughts around that and for the invitation to do so, particularly out of the passage that Kerry read for us a little earlier from Mark 14, the first 11 chapters. Um, you frame up a series on discipleship in 2019 Australia and to be honest, you're picking a slightly opaque piece of language as your, your sermon series title. The honest truth is um, out in the corporate world, out in your neighbourhoods, out in the sporting world, the, the expression discipleship doesn't come up a lot. Uh, and so it's one of those words that's kind of code for something and it's worth at least me confessing my bias on what I think this word discipleship is short for. Um, it wouldn't have been an unusual word for people back in Jesus' time to pick because they were just in a world full of rabbis and disciples, people who were teachers and people who were followers. And the sense of discipleship then is that there's a rabbi, a teacher, a person who's just got something compelling about them. Uh, do you remember that time that um, Jesus offered his disciples the chance to leave him and they said, well, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, they're saying, we come alive more fully when we're around you. There's something about you that even though at times it's hard, we wouldn't rather be anywhere else on the face of the earth. Uh, and so a rabbi offers people who resonate with what they teach and how they live the opportunity to be with them. So raised on a, on a steady diet of um, Western education systems, a, a lecture and, and lectured format, um, podcasts and online series, and just a you talk, we listen model, we need to remember that when we use the word discipleship, it's not a lecture model. Uh, it's an engagement model. It's a shared life model. It's, it's watch and learn. Be around me in such close proximity that how I live and move and have my being is something you can actually see. Not just when I'm on, like doing the ministry stuff, but when I'm going camping on the Mount of Olives as well. Um, watch and see, but also um, watch and do. Because what I see, what you see in me, I want you to actually start putting training wheels on and having a go at that yourself. So the way that discipleship operates for Jesus, in some sense, is a catch and release system where he's saying, I, I, I want you to catch what I am, who I am, how I live, how I see the world, how I engage with the powerful, how I engage with the weak. I want you to catch what I have and then I want you to release that as you go and live your lives in your settings, in your ways. Yeah? It's, it's a big, fully orbed, whole of life engagement when we talk about discipleship and it's a lot more than it's worth saying than listening to some guy bang on for half an hour at the front of a room on a Sunday morning. I mean, that's the best bit, but the other bit's super important. 
<laughs> if that's, can I just say, if that's the best bit for you, then you need to get out more often. <laughs> um, so, we're talking about discipleship and we learn from the passage that Kerry read earlier that we're in um, the time in the Jewish calendar that's known as um, Passover uh, and the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. Again, more code, so let's pop the bonnet on that. Uh, so Passover, for those of you who haven't kind of really poured over Exodus any time recently, is this thing that was super important to the Hebrews because there's this bracket of their history where having been called to be God's people, re-blessing the earth on God's behalf, somehow or other they've found themselves in slavery. Uh, in, a, in a foreign nation with foreign gods doing things that are very, very humble. Worse than humble, they're heavy and crushing. And there comes a time where um, God decides, I'm going I'm to set my people free. <laughs> um, and it's a hectic season while he works out the practicalities of that. And there's this time where death washes through Egypt and takes the firstborn in every family, including the firstborn amongst their livestock, except the Hebrews. Which is not a happy story. For them, it's a story of sparing, <laughs> a time when God spared them the worst thing that could be imagined um, and took what was going on in the nation where they lived and used it for their good. So um, Passover, the passing over of death from them, that's a big deal. The Festival of the Unleavened Bread then kind of goes on after that because after death has passed over them, the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, finally lets them go from 430 years of slavery. Let's just pause there for a second. That's twice as long as colonial Australian history. Yeah? <laughs> That's a while. That's a bunch of generations coming out of slavery. Can you imagine like the... That, that's an enormous part of their faith and their national story is, remember that time where we actually came out of slavery after 430 years and finally again we were free? Yeah, I mean, sure, we were worshipping God in the desert for a while, but that was how great was that? Uh, and so the Festival of Unleavened Bread remembers the time where they cooked flatbread that would keep longer and took it with them as they left Egypt and walked off to discover what it would be like to be God's free people engaging with their vocation to re-bless the earth, not in slavery now, but on their own account. That's, that's a big festival in the Jewish calendar. Do you understand that? That's a huge time for these things that we're reading about to be happening. Uh, and Jesus, as a good observant Jew, is in the right place at the right time, doing the right things with the right people. He's in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, it seems to have always been part of the family history for, Je for Jesus with his uh, mother Mary and his earthly father Joseph. Luke tells us that every year they used to go to Jerusalem for the Passover and there was this one time where he weirded them out by uh, getting forgotten and left behind and they all panicked on the way back to where they were from and went back and found him um, weirding out even more beautifully all the wise people with his wisdom. <laughs> you remember that story? Yeah, so this is just like, this is just the rhythm of Jesus' year. Like you go to Jerusalem for Passover and you observe the great things to be remembered. Um, so the first thing I would want to say as I reflect on the model of discipleship that Jesus engages in in the Gospel of Mark uh, is that Jesus doesn't do away with sacred places and moments and relationships. He's, he's still remembering Passover. Why would you not remember Passover? 
He's still taking the festival of the unleavened bread in community with other Jews. Why would you not do that? He's, he's still going to the temple. He's not doing away with the temple. But here's the tricky bit. He, he doesn't stay there. Geographically, he doesn't stay there because what we learn if we read the Gospels is actually when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, seems frequently when he comes to Jerusalem, where he stays is actually outside of Jerusalem, not in the holy city, not in proximity to the temple, but about three kilometres away in a place called Bethany. Um, Bethany's actually got a bit of a history with Jesus. Bethany is where his cousin, John the Baptist, was placed when he was baptising Israel back into a repentance of faithfulness to God. Remember his cousin, John, who did that? Uh, And there was this day actually where Jesus, as a guy who was beginning to enter into public life, goes to his cousin and says, baptize me into the faithfulness of Israel. And the Spirit of God descends on him, almost in a visible way like a dove. And this audible voice rings out from heaven. See, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. You you would go back to that place, yeah? (laughs) You would go back to that place. And so it looks like each year when Jesus goes to Jerusalem for Passover, he stays in this town called Bethany. And it looks like he makes some friends there. There's a a woman who lives there called Mary, and she's got a sister called Martha and a brother called Lazarus. And those of you who've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts of Jesus' life, you'll know those people, they, they have special access to Jesus, or he has special access to them. I'm never sure which way around it is. Um, but they become drawn up in this catch-and-release discipleship program without formally having any acknowledgement of that. Um, some of you probably know there's this day with those three friends where they're bereft because Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is dead. And Jesus weeps because a friend in one of his favourite towns has died. And... Um, Then he acts to make the most tragic and final thing that could befall a human be undone and Lazarus rises from the dead. You would go back to that town. (laughs) And it seems like Jesus sets up home base, not in Jerusalem, but out three kilometres away at Bethany during what we talk about as Passion Week, the week that leads up to his execution. And so he's actually in Bethany when he says to his disciples, can you go and just find a a guy with a colt and see if I can borrow that colt to ride into Jerusalem on it? And uh, after he's ridden in Jerusalem, he goes back to Bethany that night. And when he goes into Jerusalem the next day and engages in a public protest against the commercialization and segregation of faith that was happening in the temple, he then that night goes back to Bethany and sleeps back there. And so the week of Passion Week becomes this, yeah, I'm... I'm at Passover and I'm celebrating the festival of the unleavened bread and I'm in Jerusalem and I'm at the temple, but I'm not staying there. I'm out in Bethany and I'm with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and I'm I'm camping on the Mount of Olives and I'm going and I'm praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you understand? So Jesus doesn't do away with sacred places and moments and relationships. He stays out of Jerusalem. It's about the same distance to Dural Public School, (laughs) how far away he is when he stays in Bethany. Uh, And by this coming and going, he expands what's sacred to include every place and moment and relationship that he comes across. (sighs) Come on. 
How tight-fisted do we sometimes become on the things that neat, plausible religions sell to us as the small list of sacred places and moments and relationships? And yet Jesus, by coming but not staying, he just says to us, just open your hands, (laughs) breathe. Uh, The ancients had said, um, the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. Uh, The psalmist had written, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all people are his. And Jesus goes, yeah, it sounds like that's probably right. So I mean, I'll come to Jerusalem and I'll remember the Passover and I'll celebrate the festival of the unleavened bread, but I'm not going to stay as though Yahweh's only there. Uh, He says of the one who he just keeps insisting is our father. He says, my father is always working and so I am as well, whether I'm in Jerusalem or in Bethany. I'm convinced that in this passage, Mark tells us a certain detail specifically to reinforce this point. Uh, Because Jesus, when he leaves Jerusalem that evening and goes back to Bethany, has dinner somewhere. Did you notice where he has dinner? Yeah, that's some good Baptist whispering. Call it out. I'll save you from it. Simon the leper. (laughs) He's at table with Simon the leper which seems like a politically incorrect thing to stand at the front of the room and say in 2019, but in first century Judaism, it was a loaded comment. Because back then, if you were a leper, you didn't go and see a dermatologist and get some topical cream to put on or um, inject yourself with something every fortnight um, to, to reduce the symptoms of your illness. Because the word leper was used in their culture to describe a a range of diseases, some of which were contagious, Uh, if you were a leper, what you had was feared. People were worried they were going to catch it. And they weren't just going to catch something that was painful and visibly unpleasant. They were going to catch something that, within their culture, um, had come to be viewed as unclean. You could catch uncleanness from someone else. (laughs) In Leviticus... I'm going to say chapter 13, but you can go back and fact check me later on. Uh, First of all, positively, it says that people who are bald are not unclean. So that's a good word for some of you. Uh, But then it goes on to say that people who have this affliction of disease, you get all sorts of hidden extras in my talks. Um, People with this kind of disease um, are unclean and ought to walk around the community, first of all, living outside the town, second of all, wearing clothes that people can see from a distance, mark them out as unclean, and then announcing over themselves when they come into earshot, unclean. If I'm Simon the leper, there's a pretty good chance that a big chunk of my life has been spent in suffering, physical suffering, exclusion, social exclusion, hopelessness, because how's this disease going to magically go away? I'm 2,000 years away from a dermatologist. And the neat, plausible religious folk think I'm unclean. So when Jesus comes and is at table in the home of Simon the leper, something wildly disruptive is breaking into the story about what's clean and unclean, where hope ends, what it means to be in endless suffering, and how it is that the excluded can be included again 
in the story of God's people. Do you understand that that's what he's doing here? It's, um, it's a pretty scandalous story long before anyone st- turns up and starts spending a year's wages pouring ointment on him. <laughs> uh, I-, I would argue that actually for Jesus, the choice to go to a leper's home is not just a random choice to mess with people's heads about the boundary of sacred being stretched out to cover the whole earth. Uh, it seems as though to Jesus, those who are suffering, those who are excluded, those who are regarded by the neat religious folk as unclean and those who have lost all hope have a special place in God's affection and plan. Uh, So over and over again, he goes, he finds those people and he scandalizes the neat religious folk around him. He bewilders the closest disciples, the catch and release program, by going and dining, eating, drinking, talking, meeting at wells, doing a hundred other things with the exact categories of people who everybody else thought were outside sacred. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> and so there's this day, it's in Matthew's gospel, so I'm kind of breaking the invitation um, by stepping into a different account of Jesus' life for a moment, but you'll forgive me because you're a nice bunch of people. Uh, and he gets challenged by a bunch of the neat religious folk about why are you doing this? And he turns to them and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He reorients the world towards the suffering, towards the excluded, towards the hopeless, and towards those that in our neat, plausible religious thoughts we might think are outside what's sacred. which is a problem if the way that we conceive our faith still has boundaries about where we ought to go and where we ought not to go, what sorts of things are an expression of faith for us and what sorts of things are simply work or suburbia or charity. If we draw those lines, we run the risk of being the kind of people who simply ignore the suffering, the excluded, the hopeless, and those who the neat religious folk might regard as unclean. Or worse yet, we might run from them in case we catch their uncleanness. But Jesus dines in the home of Simon the leper, thinking that the clean will make the unclean clean, not the other way around. Uh, So one writer reflecting on this says this, he says, if your goal is to produce firefighters and rescue workers, you have to produce people willing to enter burning buildings. There's a happy thought for you on a Sunday morning, but it's true. He says, they do not do this because they love fire, but because they hate it (laughs) and because they despise the damage it can do to people in their dreams. Their hatred of fire and their love of safety draws them towards fire and danger. Contrast this to two other kinds of people, pyromaniacs or arsonists and pyrophobes. Pyromaniacs love fires and damage they can cause and do and so start them. Pyrophobes fear fires and avoid them at any cost. Uh, so as followers of Jesus, we ought to avoid extremes, but instead drawn on by the joy set before us to see what Jesus kept talking about as the kingdom of heaven actually break out in Dural and in northern Sydney and across all Australia 
Australia and in the darkest parts of the world for the sake of the joy set before us, we push towards the pain, towards the danger, towards the challenge that we don't even know how to meet yet. In faith that somehow we have the spirit of the divine physician within us. If only we come in faith and hope and love. Uh, So this writer wraps up by saying this. He says, my concern is that Jesus was more like a firefighter or a doctor or a social worker who walks walks boldly into the danger in order to try and stop it. If a healed and healthy earth is your destination, the way to that goal promotes involvement, engagement, risk and participation. Let that unsettle us in all the right ways, Holy Spirit. Uh, So I would say that everyone, everywhere and everything is sacred in the sense that God is present and loving and working for good. And so then, ought we to be? Everyone. Everywhere and everything is sacred in the sense that God is present and loving and working for good, and so then ought we be. (laughs) Uh, My discipleship, to be perfectly honest, yours as well, is never off. (laughs) My discipleship is never off. Um, It's never more on than when I'm with the suffering, the excluded, the hopeless, and those who the neat religious folk might regard as unclean, because in those moments, something sacred is about to break out. And if I'm the only person filled with the spirit of Jesus in that context, it's about to break out through me. (sighs) That's your job this week. (laughs) And the week after and the week after and the week after and the week after. Uh, Come on. I could finish there, but I'm not going to because you have to do sermons in three points and I've only done two. (laughs) And yes, I am counting the background as a point. (laughs) Uh, So where to from here? Uh, As you go about spotting the sacred in the everyday, can you just, do you know that your everyday is sacred? Do you know that your ordinariness is filled with glory? Do you know that the dust of just Monday to Saturday is filled with glory? Do you know that? Do you see it in your homes? Do you see it in your suburbs? Do you see it in the opportunities you have in your workplace? to give expression to to Christ in you, to let it change your character and your behaviours, to make you more peaceful, more loving, more hopeful, more generous, more attentive to those around you, particularly those who are suffering and excluded and hopeless and thought to be by neat religious folks unclean. Do you understand that? Do you understand just the, the sheer sacredness and beauty and wonder of a life filled with opportunities to express the compassion of God to other people and to the creation that he made. Did you understand that faith in Jesus and following in the way of Jesus and participating in the catch and release program of discipleship with Jesus goes beyond even just those things, our character, our behaviours and our compassion. It breaks out in all sorts of other ways. When I see Dan Cattell in worship, I see the beauty and wonder and creativity of God finding a human being through which he's able to filter himself. 
when I see people who come towards the sick, yes, ministering in practical ways, yes, cooking meals and dropping them over, yes, looking after their kids while they go to treatment and doing a million other practical, compassionate things, but also saying, I'm trusting there's enough goodness in heaven for me to pray for you. And I don't know what will happen with that, but I know that God does unexpected things because he's in the business of making the whole earth sacred afresh. And so we pray and we hope and from time to time we see healing. That, that's the sacredness of the everyday. Why would you not chase after that? And when I see people who are living that kind of beautifully, fully formed life in Christ, when I see them welcoming others into that same experience of the sacredness in the everyday, the blessedness of the ordinary, dirt mixed with glory being the substance of human life, when I see them encouraging others to make that their new normal. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'd join that church. <laughs> you are that church. You are that church. We are that church. This is God's redemption project to make the whole earth realize afresh that all of it, every place, every moment, every relationship is sacred and loaded up with wonder. And so when um, this woman pushes into Simon the leper's house, do you understand now? Other community members are pushing into the household of a man who ordinarily they wouldn't have come near lest they, be, lest they catch his uncleanness. This, this is how it works. <laughs> when this woman pushes in towards Jesus at the table with Simon and cracks open a, a bottle holding an extraordinarily expensive uh, ointment or perfume and pours it on him, in the eyes of those who've been drawn into this catch and release program, they know Jesus' priority on being a practical blessing to the suffering, the excluded, the hopeless, and those who the neat religious folk regard as unclean. They know all that. So when they look at this and they smell the perfume, and they go, we know what that perfume is. It's like a year's wages. We could have sold that. We could have given that to the poor. When they start criticizing this woman for her particular act of genuine devotion, Jesus leaps to her defense as he so often does and he says to them no nah, it's okay uh, she's done for me what others won't have the opportunity to she's anointed me for burial it's just a leap out and show you that I did actually do some sermon prep um, it is a reference to the fact that his body will have risen before the women come to be able to anoint him for burial on resurrection Sunday um, Wherever this story is told, she'll be remembered, Jesus says. Did you, do you know 2,000 years later, we are remembering this single act of genuine devotion, just as Jesus said we would, because he did this woman the honour of saying, everything is sacred, even the scandalously lavish acts that mean you might not have minutes or money to do the compassion. You'll get plenty of time for that, he says, knowing full well how the world works. <laughs> The poor will always be with you. You can be compassionate to them anytime. This, this is the right momentary act for this woman to offer. Uh, I just, I want to, so let's pause the talk again. <laughs> um, 
I don't know who designed this sermon series for you guys, but I just want to thank you for making me talk on this passage. Um, I've I've just I encountered Jesus afresh in this um, in this remembering of what he did and how he is, um, partly for the 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 kindness he has for Simon and the kindness he has for this woman, but also for the fact that you made me keep reading for the next two verses where we read about Judas and the decision that he makes to go off and betray Jesus. Because what's found in those verses just reminded me that Jesus will set you completely free to be the co-creator of your own discipleship, for good or for ill. You are wonderfully, scandalously, unboundedly free Inhabit freedom well. <laughs> That's the New Testament paradigm. Uh, and so when Judas goes off and he betrays Jesus to the rulers in order to exchange that for a little bit of money, that's how he's choosing to co-create his discipleship on that day. And unlike every other neat, plausible deity out there, he doesn't get struck with lightning. He doesn't fall dead on the way to the, the temple to betray Jesus. Jesus doesn't even give him a what have you done speech when he sees him next, which if it wasn't before, was at least on the Last Supper when Judas was present as well. None of that. Ooh wildly and wonderfully but with great responsibility then we are you me all of us are the co-creators of our own discipleship so if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying i am dissatisfied with how life in christ is working for me at the moment then buy a mirror and you just found the person who's going to fix it for you remember when you look in that mirror inside that person the ordinariness the skin the bones the hair the not hair it doesn't matter if there's no hair you're not unclean Leviticus 13 says so uh, whatever you see in the mirror that person in their ordinariness is this mixture of dust and glory that I've referenced now three times because inside you is the spirit of the living God the implanted word growing his own life in you <laughs> enabling you both to will and to work is how Paul puts it I'm thinking Philippians um and you haven't understood just how free you are in the way that you engage with Jesus' process of catch and release discipleship until you actually start asking questions like, so, Frosty, are you seriously telling us that we are just completely and utterly free? We can betray Jesus and he won't intervene and criticize us for the way that we're handling our discipleship? Until you start asking questions like, what are you even saying? Are you just saying we can just go and keep on sinning? Until you ask that question, you haven't understood freedom the way that Jesus gives freedom in the way that Paul, one of the earliest followers of Jesus, understood how freedom works in Jesus. Because in Romans 5, could be Romans 6, I'll check, 6, there you go. Um, in Romans 6, Paul writes, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? That's the question. Until we actually get to that point where that question genuinely occurs to us, we're still playing in the sandpit of freedom and not stepping out of it into all that it means. Uh, Paul says, of course, having asked a very legitimate question, uh, by no means, <laughs> by no means, how can we who are dead to sin go on living in it? But we've got to learn how to live alive to grace freely as co-creators of our own discipleship. <sighs> knowing that Jesus sets us completely free to be the co-creators of our own discipleship and will accept every act of genuine devotion, however bewilderingly singular it is to you as his follower. And he'll even, uh, if you betray him, he'll still disciple you. 
that last sentence is a tough one. So Judas walks the 3K from Bethany to the city and finds the leaders and, and receives a bit of cash. And then as best we can tell, he rejoins the 12 and their rabbi, Jesus. I don't know what happened on Thursday because the events we're reading about took place on Wednesday night, the day before Jesus' arrest. I don't know what happened on Thursday, the day of Jesus' arrest and Judas's actual betrayal. But what I do know is that on Thursday night when Jesus gathered the 12 to eat, he still invited Judas. As best I can tell, he still washed Judas's When later on he was in the garden praying so fervently that his father would deliver him from this moment he was in, that he was crying tears of blood. Um, when Judas approached, he let him kiss him on the cheek. I don't know what you've done this week, this month, this year, this decade that you might think disqualify you from Jesus' intimacy, affection and the ongoing growth of your discipleship, but even if you betray him, He'll still disciple you. The way that Paul chases this idea in scripture is that he goes on to say, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Here's my only rule about how you use your freedom. Uh, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. Or in another place, John, another one of the, the writers in the New Testament, says this, Beloved, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because he obeys because we obey his commandments and do what he pleases. Um, what then is this commandments of which you speak? Uh, John goes on to say, and this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and it gets really simple now, love one another just as he commanded us. So if you've got some weird, singular act of genuine devotion pushing forward in your spirit and you're not quite sure what the other people around you will think or, more importantly, what Jesus will think, if it's freedom, if it's not self-indulgence, if it reflects your belief in Jesus <laughs> and uh, if it reflects love for, for others, just go ahead and do it. Run an experiment. The worst thing that will happen is Jesus will leap to your defence <laughs> and tell the pragmatists, chill out. <laughs> There'll be plenty of time to look after the poor afterwards. <laughs> As you do that then, because I know how it works when you have one of those thoughts form and then you think, oh, no, I can't be the person who who has a word to share. I can't be the person who who prays for that sick person. I can't be the person who mentors that upcoming leader in my workplace I can't be the person who goes across to the the family across the road and offers compassion to them do you know what we do we, we just we disqualify ourselves um, I'm not anointed for that I'll just wait for someone with a different anointing to come and they'll do it that's how we spiritualize uh, the lowering of our sights <laughs> um, here's what I learned from Mark 14 uh, anointing for Jesus is not the special activity of the select few. It's the freely offered devotion of all those who respond to the one who has drawn near to them and drawn them near to God. 
Uh, so I just want, before I finish, to disabuse you of your sense of unworthiness or uncertainty and just invite you this week to the utter, scandalous, responsibility-filled freedom <laughs> to co-create your own discipleship and participate in God's re-blessing of the earth. Um, as you do, uh, Christ bless you and keep you. May his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Uh, Christ turn his face towards you constantly and give you peace. I'm done.